Hello, everyone. So we're going to continue our lecture on the history of the church through the Middle Ages. Today, we're going to uh, shift our focus and look at the spread of Christianity into Russia. Uh, just a reminder, so at the <clears throat> after the Great Schism of 1054, uh, the Western Catholic Church, or in the sense the Catholic Church, uh, split into two camps. The Western Catholic Church under the authority of the papacy, while the uh, Eastern Church became more known as the Eastern Orthodox Church, which fell under the uh, rule and the authority of the Patriarch of Constantinople. Um, uh, with... Uh, with that, the tied the Eastern Orthodox Church was very closely tied to the Byzantine Empire, um, and so uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church uh, began to expand westward and northwards from Constantinople um, into different Slavic communities and groups, uh, where the Eastern Byzantine version of Christianity thrived. Um, and it's like I said, surpassing those those boundaries, those political boundaries of the Byzantine Empire. Um, and like, and so one of these regions is Russia, um, and the the expansion of Christianity into Russia helped formulate the creation of the Russian Orthodox Church, and which allows, which has uh, ever since been part of the uh, Russian people and ethnicity, um, and the Russian Orthodox Church today is one of the larger uh, uh, and more substantial groups and powers within the Eastern Orthodox Church. So we're going to look at its development and its history here. Um, so in the 10th century, Kiev was the most powerful and prosperous city in Russia. Now, Russia did not exist in this time period. It was broken up into different Slavic communities um, and different principalities and, and smaller kind of feudal land kingdoms ruled by different dukes and such. Um, but leadership in this in the Kiev region, as well as other regions, was in the hands of the Rus. The Rus were um, descendants of Norsemen who were, you know, Vikings who traveled up and down the, the Dnieper or Volga rivers, um, traveling and trading through these different Slavic communities, enslaving some, selling some as slaves uh, into the Byzantine Empire. Um, so the the, uh, the Rus were. Uh, particularly uh, passionate and fervent in regards to commerce and trading with the Byzantine Empire. Because of this contact with the Rus, um, with the Byzantines, it allowed for Christianity to filter back into these to this region, into these Slavic communities. Um, the first church was built by uh, Olga of Kiev, um, uh, 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 patron of the Orthodox, Russian Orthodox Church today in 945. Uh, but really Christianity uh, blossoms under the reign of Prince Vladimir, uh, who ruled from 980 to about 1015 AD. Uh, Prince Vladimir was the grandson of, of Olga, who founded the first church in 945. Um, Prince Vladimir converts over to Christianity, but there's a unique story in which he, he invites Christianity to spread among his people. And so the way he does so is that he's, he sends out uh, or contacts uh, to bring in four representative, uh, four 
uh, representatives from each of the four different major religions, Judaism, Islam, Eastern Orthodox Christianity, Roman Catholicism. And so he invites the delegates from these each. He's not impressed with Judaism and Islam, and he can't decide between uh, Eastern Orthodox and Western Catholicism. So he sends delegates to each of these, his own personal representatives to each of these, to assess which is the better Christianity to pick. Um, the the uh, the Byzantine form of worship in the Hagia Sophia left an indelible impression upon uh, the delegates from uh, uh, who traveled to Constantinople, and so uh, convinced Vladimir to adopt the Eastern Orthodox mode of religion. Uh, the Russians would always place a greater value in their visually stunning mode of worship than strict doctrinal orthodoxy or moral codes. It doesn't mean that there wasn't any, it just means there's a greater emphasis on the mode of worship than on doctrinal issues. Um, in 988, so Prince Vladimir embraced Eastern Orthodoxy. The, uh, the Patriarch of Constantinople uh, instit instituted the office of the Bishop of Kiev uh, to guide the Russian church. Uh, so Vladimir uh, began to closely uh, tie himself to the Byzantine Empire. There's always in this early phase stage of Christianity, Russia, there's an early uh, close connections between the Russian church, the Russian people, and the Byzantine Empire. Um, Prince Vladimir marries Anna, who's the niece of uh, Basil II of the Macedonian dynasty. Um, he also invites uh, from the Byzantine Empire monks to come spread uh, Christianity and teach and help convert more and more of the Russian people over to Christianity. Uh, these Byzantine monks help translate the liturgy into Slavonic, so that way the, uh, the liturgy can be conducted in the primary language of the Russian people. Um, it's also during this time period that we see unique architecture begin to form for the Russian people. It's a distinctive Russian church architecture, which you see famously. It's those onion-shaped uh, top buildings, uh, top church buildings. Um, Prince Vladimir uh, was, was not only converted Christianity, but acted in Christian and in, in, in supported Christian uh, endeavors, such as uh, developing a social service for the poor and the needy and the homeless. Uh, he also established Christian schools throughout the city, as well as the regions. Um, now, uh, after his death, unfortunately, his dozen sons uh, purged Kiev into a civil war in which uh, only one would be victor victorious, and that is Yoroslav the Wise. Uh, Yoroslav burst victorious in 1036. Now, under Yaroslav's rule, Kiev begins to evolve itself and transform into an intellectual and artistic capital and becomes kind of the uh, intellectual heart of Russia. Uh, the, trans the Bible was translated into Slavonic as well. You see the arrival uh, and, uh, and thanks and the development of the monastic movement, thanks to Antony and Theodosius. Uh, uh, Antony founded the Monastery of the Caves in 1051 uh, outside of Kiev, and they championed the necessity of enduring suffering humbly for Christ's sake and renouncing retaliation. Now, the Russian Orthodox Church uh, adhered uh, very much closely to the Byzantine model and uh, with worship 
and sided with uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church during the Great Schism of 1054. Um, the monastic movement expanded, and in fact, even today, the monastic community remains a key part of Rus the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, uh, it resulted from the 20 monastic uh, uh, monasteries um, that existed uh, with Yaroslav to about 50 monasteries in around 1100 A.D., there was other rise of other prominent uh, prominent figures. You have Hilarion of Kiev, who was the first native Russian metropolitan bishop of Kiev. Um, he has he is known for different things. His most re renowned work is Sermons on Law and Grace, uh, which focuses on the distinctions between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and uh, the importance of history uh, in God's divine plan. You also had Cyril of Turov. Uh, he was a, the Bishop of Turov. He gained fame for his timeless sermons and prayers and, uh, and letters. Um, his spiritual presence resembled that of, or spiritual perspectives was similar to Augustine in that, um, uh, that he really focused on God's omnipotent power and mercy and majesty and the absolute hopelessness of a sinner who relies on the mercy of God, um, and that there can be no salvation without this divine mercy. Now, one of the most transformative periods of Russian history, especially the Kievan Rush, is the expansion of the Mongol Empire. The Mongol nomads were united by Genghis Khan um, and began his campaign of expansion into China and Central Asia and the Khorasan Empire. Um, he sent a small kind of like reconnaissance and force a raiding party um, into modern day Iran and into the Caucasus mountains regions and uh, into Russia. Um, and this force actually defeated the Russians at the battle of the Kalka river. Now this wasn't the main Mongol Mongol army. It was just a small raiding force, but it would devastate the Russian forces. And as quickly as it came and left and returned back to Mongolia, um, the Mongols, though, would return in full force uh, under Batu Khan in 1236, um, and this was massive force devastated um, the Russian military and uh, conquered Kiev and wiped out its populace in 1240. Um, so the the Russian Kievan state completely collapsed uh, into different principalities, and the Mongol force began to move into Central Europe. Uh, dividing itself into Poland and only stopped in, with and in on Hungary, um, thanks to the death of Ogadai Khan, who was the chief Khan of the Mongols at this time. Uh, because of his death, all Mongol leadership had to return to elect a new Khan. So every invasion pretty much stopped at this point to help elect that new Khan. Um, so the Mongols can, though, even though they ceased their expansion, continued to rule Russia. Um, and so the, the, uh, they, the Russians were, uh, the Russians had to pay tribute to the Mongols, um, from their Northern cities, but everything, everything kind of central and South of Russia, uh, in Russia was under the rule of the Mongols, this Mongol Canaanite that was called, uh, the golden horde with its capital at Sarai in off the Caspian sea. But the, those cities, Russian cities that were outside of Mongol control, uh, maintained some relative level of independence, um, but they had to pay substantial tribute to the Mongols. The the um, 
with the destruction of Kiev, uh, Orthodox believers frequently would reflect back on Kiev and Russia as the golden age of Russian Christianity. Uh, but because of the Mongol conquest, it's going to have a shaping influence of moving the center of Russian Christianity from Kiev to Moscow, as we'll see later. Um, there's further developments looking at other Slavic communities here for a second uh, within Serbia. Um, the Serbs also contributed significantly to the development of Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, one of their primary principal figures is a man named Sava. He was a Serbian prince uh, who was intrigued by the monastic life at the famous uh, monastery at Mount Athos. It was the famous monastery in Greece. Um, supposedly no woman's allowed to enter into this day. No woman has ever at last set foot on Mount Athos. Um, Sava was drawn to the monastery um, after protests from his father and his father trying to prevent him from going. He establishes the first Serbian community there at Mount Athos, um, known as Highlander. He even draws his own father to joining and um, uh, leaving his throne and abdicating to join his son at this monastery. Uh, but because of that, it breaks Serbia, the kingdom of Serbia breaks into civil war. Um, there's different factions. And because Serbia is in relation between, it's kind of the dividing point between Western Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, this, the different sons vying for power are split between those two camps. And at one point it seems that Western Catholicism would be dominating the, 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 the dominant uh, Christianity in Serbia until Sava returned. His father had died. Um, and so he returned with his father's body. Um, the interesting thing is that his father died seven years before this, before his return. And supposedly when they opened up the casket, his body was still, instead of smelling the death and decay, smelled of wheat, sweet uh, smelling oil and myrrh. So um, signifying that his father had become a saint. Uh, so his father is known as Simeon the Myrrh Gusher. And because of Sava's presence with his father, um, he was able to reconcile his brothers and help end the civil war. Uh, so he becomes the first archbishop of Serbia in 1219. He's able to anoint his brother uh, Stephen as the Orthodox king in 1220. Um, he's perceived as a humble individual, very pious and serene and tranquil. Um, his he his demeanor radiates the um uh, the centrality of knowing christ uh in his life and an authentic life um he he plays a role in helping severing ties from the papacy uh but sava does pass away in 1236 he's considered a national hero of the serbs he's visited by both jews and catholics alike um he's so important uh, to Serbian Serbian national identity, that the um, the uh, Ottoman Turks in 1595 uh, exhume his body and burn it in, his, in an attempt to destroy and desecrate his memory and help obliterate his memory. But he's still such a key figure in Serbian history and spread of Eastern Orthodoxy and cementing Eastern Orthodoxy in Serbia. Now, uh, shifting back to Russia, so after the destruction of Kiev. The Mongols, even though they're expanding this empire, did not seek to change or transform the religions of any lands that they conquered. The Mongols were primarily shamans. Uh, the Mongols, depending on which leader you look at in which region, 
uh, either convert to Islam, some maintain shaman practices, some practice forms of Buddhism or Confucianism, some even embrace Nestorian Christianity. So it all just really depends on which figure you look at. Um, but regardless, uh, the Mongols in most areas, in, in different time periods, it always fluctuates. Uh, but generally speaking, had a toleration of other religions, allowed other religions to have their own particular practices. Um, so because of this, um, it allowed the Russian Orthodox Church to continue to grow. Um, uh, so the Russian Orthodox Church became kind of a point of resistance uh, against the Mongols and tied itself very closely to the Russian leaders. And so the church and the state in Russia is very, very close tied together and intertwined together uh, because this this uh, Russian national identity against um, and collective defiance against the Mongols. And one such particular place was Novgorod, which was a northern Russian city. Uh, Novgorod became a bastion of uh, Russian Christian civilization. Um, it emerged as a significant stronghold. Um, the under the uh, upon the uh, collapse of Kiev in 1240, Novgorod assumed the mantle of safeguarding Russia's national liberty and Orthodox faith. One of its most important figures uh, was a man named uh, Prince Alexander Nevsky. Nevsky uh, was known as a good, great military leader. He defeated the Swedes at the uh, Battle of Neva in 1240 um, and defeated the Teutonic Knights at the Battle of Lake Papus in 1242. Um, Nesky was able to broker a peace with the Mongols to, to maintain the level of independence uh, while paying tribute to the Mongols to keep them away for long enough. But his most significant contribution um, was, the, was appointing and bestowing upon his son Daniel in 1270 uh, the... See the small village city town of Moscow and forever beginning the groundwork for the formation and birth of Moscow being the central uh, city of the Russian people. Uh, Grand Prince Ivan I uh, was the eminent ruler of Moscow. And one of the things is that he draws the metropolitan bishop of Kiev kind of the chief figure, uh, not so much a patriarch in a sense, near the level of patriarch of uh, in the Orthodox Church. Um, he convinces the Metropolitan Bishop of Kiev to move uh, from Kiev to Moscow. And so Peter, the Metropolitan Bishop, resides now in Moscow. So the headquarters of the Eastern Orthodox Church is, is now moved and centralized in Moscow. So the the uh, so the church is now completely entrenched within uh, Moscow's landscape. Now the the Russian Orthodox spiritual transformation found an influential figure in a man named Sergius of Radonezh. He was an ascetic who led a reclusive life, um, who had similar to like many ascetics had access to divine visions. Uh, performed miracles. He founded his own monastery at the Holy Trinity in 1340. Um, Sergius played an important role for catalyzing the spread of Russian uh, Russian missionary monks who spread Russian Orthodox Church into the northern forests of, you know, of Russia and Siberia and beyond, um, and converting the pagan inhabitants and establishing more monastic communities that branched out and connected together. Um, the monastery of the Holy Trinity, 
uh, incubated a new powerful tradition of Russian art with the helps of men like Daniel Corny and Andrew Rublev. Um, their artwork began to proliferate. And one such particular artwork, for example, of Andrew Rublev's was the um, Holy Trinity, uh, the uh, Three Angels, uh, which is sometimes known as the Holy Trinity or also it's uh, the three, the triad angels with Abraham, visiting Abraham, um, with the focus on the central angel here, uh, which is personified as Christ uh, because the angel is wearing a clad, is wearing both red and blue um with the blue uh, uh each with each color signifying his divine and human nature remember icons just like we talked about in our previous lecture on the eastern orthodox church played a significant role in eastern orthodox re religion and liturgy um icons held a venerated place in, in the russian orthodox church adorning everything from churches to peasant houses um Russians ascribed certain miracles and powers to different icons. So one particular icon, the icon of Our Lady, Our Lady of Vladimir, for example, supposedly helped repel three different foreign invasions of Moscow. Um, so these monastic and ascetic leaders helped spread and encourage these different teachings and practices of the Eastern Orthodox Church. And more and more, especially, began to migrate from Greece and other lands of the Byzantine Empire to the Slavic communities as well in helping to enhance the Orth Eastern Orthodox tradition. Um, over time, the Golden Horde began to weaken its control over uh, the uh, Russian peoples and communities that it controlled and demanded tribute from. Uh, one in particular effect of this week, uh, the cause of this weakening is a man named Tamerlane or Timur the Lame. Uh, Tamerlane is a kind of a Turk slash Mongol, uh, supposed descendant of Genghis Khan, um, who was a bandit turned into a, a chief, a ruling chief, um, and established his own uh, Timurid empire uh, in and around Iran. Uh, he was a brutal figure, massacred hundreds of thousands, um, if not millions, and he laid waste to a lot of the Middle East. Um, Tamerlane uh, defeated the Golden Horde, and his defeat of it helped cause it to break apart into different smaller regional uh, Canaanites, uh, Canaan, uh, Canaanites, 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 that's Canaanites. Um, and so with the Golden Horde disintegrating, um, the Grand Prince Ivan III uh, began to uh, elevate and accrue sufficient political and military clout to cease having to pay tribute to the Mongols and pretty much declaring full independence. In 1480, he the Grand Prince Ivan III declares himself the ruler of Russia in 1480. And so with this, the Russian Orthodox Church emancipated itself from Mongol control and influence. Um, the uh, the uh, it began to garner support. Uh, so, um, while this was taking place in uh, in the uh, Byzantine Empire, what was left of the Byzantine Empire, the uh, the emperor began to seek support to help repel against the Ottoman Turks and to prevent further invasions because, because the, pretty much the Byzantine Empire was just simply a few small regions plus Constantinople. Um, and the Ottoman Turks looked poised to conquering the city. To help gain support in military defense, 
against the Ottoman Turks, the uh, the patriarch as well as the emperor um, seek to gain uh, gain support of the papacy and agree to be under place the Eastern Orthodox Church under the authority of the papacy. This was developed in the Union of Florence in 1439. Um, in response to that, in 1448, a Russian council of bishops united together to in turn elect their own metropolitan bishop instead of having one coordinate and worked with, uh, with the patriarch of Constantinople. Um, the Union of Florence never really worked out. The people opposed it, the, and it ended up the patriarch was kind of forced to abandon it. Um, but because of this, the Russian church, with their election of their own metropolitan bishop, uh, were declared autocephalous, which means that they were independent of the uh, patriarch of Constantinople. They have their own Orthodox church, even though, yes, they are, they are a part of the Eastern Orthodox church. The, uh, the metropolitan bishop of the patriarch of Moscow, in a sense, uh, does not have to answer to, but is on equal terms with the patriarch of Constantinople. Um, so this is a huge step forward uh, with the the enhancement of the Russian Orthodox Church as a leader of the in, within the Eastern Orthodoxy as a whole. Um, there's some rel- development of religious dissent in this time period. You have two different groups that appear uh, within the Russian Orthodox Church. You have the Strigolniki, uh, which were a group that originally um, protested simony and protested uh, certain ecclesiastical corruptions, but event began to grow into denying the resurrection and other heretical teachings. Um, you also have the rise of Gnostic groups like the Judaizers, which are some debate of exactly what they believed. They followed some sort of Gnostic teachings. Uh, but ultimately what this developed into was a view of how we should deal with heretical groups because Russians had debate whether or not um, they should be persecuted out of existence or simply defeated in arguments and persuaded to return back into the faith, back to the Russian Orthodox Church. So one of the most critical moments that transformed Eastern Orthodoxy, um, and we'll look about this in a different lecture too, especially the consequence of it, is the fall of Constantinople in 1453 to the Ottoman Turks. With the fall of the city, um, the spiritual capital of the orthodoxy, in a sense, moves from Byzantium or moves from Constantinople to Moscow. And there's some critical transformations that help that shift to take place. One besides is the fall of Constantinople itself is that Ivan III marries Sophia, who was the um, the niece of the last Byzantine emperor, Const- Constantine the Eleventh. Um, so tying himself and tying the uh, line of the Russian uh, leaders, not czars just yet, uh, into the uh, tying them with the old Caesars of the past. Um, they also began to adopt the Rus- uh, the Roman symbol of the double eagle, the Byzantine symbol of the double eagle within their standard. And then finally, Ivan IV, also known as I- Ivan the Terrible or the Austin, assumes the title of emperor, or in this case, czar. And uh, similar to the term Caesar. Uh, and so as Tsar of the all of Rus, as Tsar of all the Russians, and uses similar Byzantine coronation ceremonies. So now the center of orthodoxy begins to move from Constantinople to Moscow, it becomes the uh, the central spiritual center. Um, and Russians see this taking place as history, is in the sense that Rome was a spiritual capital. Then it moved to Constantinople, 
And then it moved now to Moscow. That Moscow is now uh, the third Rome in a in sense, in that it sees itself in, in God's divine plan through history as part of uh, as God's chosen land. Um, it preserves uh, the Christian faith from Rome and Byzantium and that it's the that it's keeping itself from heretical teachings and falling back into Western Catholicism uh, or Protestantism. It's the stand guard um, as a guardian of Christ and apostles teachings. Um, but what we see and what you'll see later on in Russian Orthodox churches, that like I said, it's very closely tied um, more so than in the sense what the Byzantine Empire had. Um, with the Russian state, um, especially when we look at like Tsar Peter the Great, um, the Russian Orthodox Church is pretty much subsumed into the state control. And the Russian Orthodox Church in many different ways has been under state control uh, ever since. Um, but that doesn't deny itself its sense of its viewpoint of being the uh, divine mission and destiny for the Russian people as a whole. Well, thank you guys for joining us for today's lecture and reviewing the development of Orthodox Church in Russia. I hope you have a good rest of your day. Hopefully you'll see us. Hopefully I'll see you soon for future lectures on the history of the church through the Middle Ages.